welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the eagerly young, effortlessly hip, and extravagantly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Olga. Hey, Zach. I love it when you just greet us with a hello. That clean open. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now you've butchered it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) What are we drinking this week, Zach? Oh, we are drinking Angry Orchards Hard Cider because we were looking for something in the theme of fall. So si- not apples, just any hard cider. cider. No, it's not. Olga, would you like to explain what type of cider we have? It is rosé cider. I was actually introduced to this by my good friend Steph over the weekend, so I decided to suggest it to my co-host. So I hope you guys like it. Yeah, it's a good transitional drink. I feel like this was the summer of rosé, and so now we mm-hmm. got the. You were just asleep last summer yeah. drinking <laughs> bourbon all the time. That's why. You- <laughs> Didn't realize it was also last summer too. <laughs> Asleep drinking. <laughs> I, I I know what I said. Cheers, cheers. All right. Tastes like candy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week we're talking with Amanda Zamora. She is the chief audience officer at the Texas Tribune, which she joined in 2016. Prior to that, she spent 13 years in the East Coast working for publications such as the Huffington Post, Investigative Fund, the Washington Post, and ProPublica. And back in August, after the reports of sexual abuse out of Pennsylvania were making headlines, Amanda wrote an article that was co-published by the Texas Tribune and the Washington Post called, I'm a Catholic survivor of abuse. I still want to hear the church say it's sorry. And in this piece, she talks about her experience of being at mass after that Pennsylvania grand jury report came out and her experience of really wanting to hear the church say it's sorry from the perspective of being an abuse victim, not by a priest, but by someone in her own family and the importance of hearing that in her own context. Yeah. And we wanted to hear Amanda's perspective in particular on uh, the abuse crisis in the future of the church. We've talked about wanting to hear survivor stories. And so Amanda was really brave and had a great conversation with us. And we're excited to share it with you. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What do we have, Zach? So a couple updates to start this week's Signs of the Times. And the first one comes from China. That deal we talked about might be coming last week was, in fact, it was announced on Saturday that the Vatican and China have reached an agreement, a provisional agreement on the appointment of bishops. And so Pope Francis has decided to readmit eight bishops, not two, like I said last week, that were previously out of communion with the Vatican. And now Pope Francis has a say in how China's bishops are appointed. Another quick update from last week. We told you about how thousands of people were protesting in India because there was a bishop that had been accused of raping a nun and the church had not taken action to remove him from ministry. Last week, the Vatican did intervene and removed Bishop Mulakal. And then the next day he was arrested on these charges of rape. He was held in jail over the weekend and he was denied bail and faces life imprisonment if he's found guilty. We will keep you updated on that. What's next, Olga? So recently, the U.S. Catholic Church has announced that they will be establishing a process by which people can report sexual misconduct by its bishops. So it's going to be a third-party phone and online complaint where people can call in, and it is not run by the church, but you can anonymously call in. That seems really important. Yes, very important. It's not run by the church. So what happens is you can call into the complaint line, and then it will alert the proper authorities, ecclesial and civil authorities. Yeah, civil is it's required by the law, right? Right. It has to be reported to civil authorities. It was still a little bit unclear as to, at least when I was reading it, who the ecclesial authorities would be. 
Yeah, like we don't know if this will go to the Vatican ambassador or straight to the Vatican or to other bishops. It's not clear. And I don't think it's actually the line has been set up yet. So it's another story we'll keep our eyes on. And so, you know, we can tell you how this actually works when it's up and running. It's a good thing that the church is in a way cooperating with civil authorities or at least like setting up procedures where abuse that's been committed by bishops and priests can be reported, but it still needs to be a little bit clear on like how exactly these ecclesial and civil authorities are going to work together, I think. Yeah. And I think the context for this is it, a lot of people were wondering how Cardinal McCarrick was able to get away with abusing seminarians for so long when it seemed like it was an open secret. And part of that is a breakdown in the structures for reporting abuse by bishops. So this is a step to correct that. What's next, Zach? So our next story comes from Chicago, where Father Paul Kalchik was removed from ministry at Resurrection Catholic Church by Cardinal Blaise Supich for burning a flag that had a rainbow and a white cross on it as part of an exorcism ceremony. Yeah, so this is a flag that had previously been on display in the church, had been packed up, and Father Kalchik found it. So some context for this, Father... Paul Kalchik was himself sexually abused as a child by a neighbor and then later by a priest when he was 19. And so so basically when he found this flag, he connected that with the sex abuse crisis. And so he announced in the church bulletin that he was going to burn in front of the church the rainbow flag that was unfortunately hanging in our sanctuary during the ceremonial first mass at Resurrection Parish. This flag was up near the sanctuary Mm -hmm. with a white cross and a rainbow. Right. And when he first announced on the bulletin that he was going to have this burning... The Archdiocese of Chicago, once they got word of it, asked him to not go forward. And he initially agreed, but then still went forward with the burning. And Supich has announced that he has removed him from his parish. And he released a statement announcing this on September 21st. Yeah. And this in this flag, when it was introduced, was meant as a sign of welcome for the LGBT community. And once it was found in storage, Kalchik said it, he, he called it a banner that was made to celebrate all things gay. And so this has been definitely seen as a sign of saying that the LGBT community is not welcome here any longer. You know, I think we read a lot into flags and into symbols of what different things mean. But I I don't know how in any way you could uh, minister to this this population, the LGBT population, when with such a public act of burning something that's important to them. And this action also plays into this idea that there's some connection between homosexuality and sexual abuse, which just is not true. There is no evidence for that. And you can't address the crisis unless you know its causes. And by making this connection, we're not only alienating LGBT people, but we're not doing anything to address the root causes of the crisis. So what's next, Zach? So our last story is a a bit of a lighter story. It was sort of spurned by this listicle that I saw published this week by Alatea, and it listed these Catholic coffee shops around the country that are trying to evangelize in this cool hipster new way. With some uh, great puns. Yeah. I mean, so we've got St. <laughs> James Coffee in Rochester, Minnesota, Holy Grounds Coffee and yeah, Tea in Santa Monica, California. There's a Jesuit one, Ignatius Cafe in Los Angeles. Uh, we've got Cultivate Coffee and Tap House in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and the Universal Cup of Coffee in Avondale, Arizona. I'm sure there might be more, but these were the five that were featured by Alatea. Yeah. So not only are these cafes bringing people communities together around coffee, but they're also trying to do so in a socially conscious way. They are using fair trade products. One of them employs formerly incarcerated individuals. And so, again, this two-winged thing of 
evangelizing and pursuing justice is a super solid model for engaging the culture, right? So coffee shops are popular. I think we maybe move on to Soul Cycle Studios next. Oh no, Zach. Yeah, I'm Catholic Soul Cycle Studios. Yeah. But you hate exercise. That's true. <laughs> it's super helpful to see examples like this and to any of these coffee shops, if you guys are Jesuitical listeners, invite us out for some coffee on tap. Joining us on Skype today is Amanda Zamora. She is the Chief Audience Officer at the Texas Tribune. Prior to joining the Tribune in 2016, she worked at organizations like the Huffington Post Investigative Fund, the Washington Post, and ProPublica. Welcome to Jesuitical, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. I really love the podcast. It's great to be here. Great. Well, we are excited that you took time out of your day to join us. So you wrote this piece called, I'm a Catholic survivor of abuse. I still want to hear the church say it's sorry. Can you tell us about what was happening when you decided to write this? <laughs> yes, uh, I was actually sitting in mass. It was the first Sunday after we all got the news of this grand jury report that came out of Pennsylvania. And it that report hit me hard as it hit so many Catholics across the country and across the world. And I was very curious going into mass that day how my parish would address it, you know, whether our pastor would acknowledge it, what would he say? And to my great relief, it was the first thing that we talked about. Even before the liturgy began, our pastor read a letter from our bishop, and it was the focus of the homily. And I just, it was all I could think about. I guess, you know, my essay is about my own experience with abuse. And it was really hard to listen to mass that day without thinking about my own experience and what and where I was in my own journey of healing and wanting, knowing what I still wanted to hear that day that I didn't hear. And just thinking about what am I called to do in response? I have had my own journey that has brought me from a point of experience with abuse into adulthood and into a maturing of my own faith. And I don't know, there was something about that moment that felt very personal to me. And that's really what compelled me to write that essay and to think about what is my role in you know response to this crisis, because I think it's a question that more Catholics need to be asking themselves, as Pope Francis has asked us, if we're going to get out of this really terrible (laughs) Groundhog Day, I think something has to change. And I think a big part of that has to be how lay people also respond and the kind of dialogue that we have as a church community going forward. It's not something that I think can be fixed by our priests alone. I mean, it the the pain and the harm has been caused by the church and the solution will need to come from the church and that includes all of us you mentioned you you were considering what your role was in responding to this and i know you mentioned that vocation played a your or your sense of vocation played a a a big role in your decision to write this essay can you say more about that yes um vocation is just an interesting concept to me Um, As I think about, I'm 38 years old, I am a single woman in the church, and I am certain that my life now does not look like what my parents imagined for me or what they talked about for me. 
I mean, my oldest sister is a nun. My brothers and sisters are married. I'm the oddball out who's, you know, I'm the youngest of seven in a super Mexican American Catholic family. And I just sort of, I confound all of the (laughs) sort of logical paths that I was supposed to take. When I think about vocation, I think about literally what is God calling me to do today in this moment in this life. And it's a constant dialogue that I'm having to try to check myself directionally. And am I listening for this call? It may change, but am I listening? Am I able to move in that direction as best I can? You felt called to write this piece. Who were you hoping to reach? What were you hoping to achieve with it? I did. I was really scared to write this piece, um, but I did felt very strongly called to write it. I can tell you that the only way that I was able to write it is because I had finally been able to write a much a, a much longer version of this actually for a community of women in my parish, my my own church here in Austin. And that being able to share my story for the first time in my entire life ooh, was profoundly powerful. Sorry. It's like, this is just such an emotional topic. Um, It was just so powerful to be able to own the experience in community. I had no idea, actually, the gifts that would come from that sharing. In the essay, which is, it was very moving and very beautiful. You describe that your healing came much later in life. And you write, my healing is a resurrection story. It is a precious gift of my faith. So can you talk a little bit more about how your faith helped you in that healing process? Oh, most definitely. I think, first of all, it comes back to wanting to have a relationship with Christ, having a prayer life where when things are not going great, I'm asking, lead me or help me, or help me to see where I need to go to be better. And I talk about there was a point in my life at 36 years old when I was living in New York where I just felt so angry and broken and stuck. I knew that I needed help, but I didn't know how to go about getting it. And it was a job opportunity, actually, that came up in Texas. And I did not want to go back to Texas. I'm from here. I'd lived for 13 years on the East Coast. And I just was not interested. And Long story short, another job opportunity that I had there in New York fell through, and I did. I came back to Texas, and that was the beginning of this healing process that I am so, so grateful for. I have lived so much of God's grace in the last two years alone. It's just been incredible. And this idea that it is a resurrection story, I didn't see that without a lot of help along the way. My father passed away. I just remember going through this process. I came back and I found a therapist and was working through all of this trauma therapy and realizing that I had much more to address with my father. The problem I was trying to solve was like, I've been abused (laughs) and I've never addressed this. And I need like, how do I work through this? And I wound up really working through a lot of, I I didn't realize actually how angry I was at my dad and my family. Hmm. They didn't commit this abuse to me. But I was so angry that they hadn't protected me from it, Mm. that they hadn't 
done anything or done what I felt like they needed to do when I had finally tried to tell them about it. And the response was just so inadequate. And I was angry. And I had the chance to really work through that with my dad before he died. Not that he ever said, and and in the piece, I actually ask for an apology because I do think that there's so much power in in a humble apology. I don't know that I got the perfect apology from my dad, but you know what I did get was the realization that even in painful relationships, Christ lives, the opportunity for Christ's love lives. And that is what I was able to find in relationship with my dad and the relationship with the rest of my family and understanding that he it was such a sanctified death. Like it was a beautiful death. He suffered it so well. And I am confident in a way that I wasn't when my mom died because I was so young and I didn't really have anyone there to help me where I may have wondered what happened to her when she died. I know where my father is. I know that he is praying for me. He's advocating for me. I know that he wasn't perfect. And I know that Christ has reconciled all of these imperfections and he's working it all out in his time and his space and his way. And I feel so thankful that I was able to achieve that peace with my father in particular, and that it's paved a way for more peaceful relationships with my brothers and sisters and given me a confidence and a voice to be able to talk about what has happened more because I also think we as people and as Catholics need to get better, more comfortable with being uncomfortable because this type of healing I don't think happens unless we're willing to dig into some of the painful points together. So you mentioned how important the apology hearing I'm sorry is. Have you heard that from the church or do you have advice for people in the church who want to make the mm-hmm. apology but are afraid of not doing it correctly or it being insufficient? Yeah. I was thinking about that and on the one hand, I was looking at how people were commenting on this essay online after I wrote it. And that's people dangerous. Get really, that's very dangerous. I know. I know. I know. And people can be kind of litigious about it and, and point at all of these acknowledgments. And it still might not seem like it's enough. And I think more than arguing for the specific words, I think what I'm advocating for is this attitude of pastoral care, where when, for instance, let's take my my dad's um, response. Obviously, he isn't the one who did this to me, but for him to be able to say, what, what is it? Is there something that I did that might have made this possible? Can we talk more about what happened did you try to tell me about this? Did I not listen? What can I do better? It's that kind of, we don't want to be associated with something that ugly. Who does? No one does. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't look at the wonderful priests that I have grown to admire in my own parish community and and think you're the problem. But I think the, the difference in approach is one where it says, I know that I may personally not be part of the problem but I am simply sorry that you are hurt. And I, I want to know more about how I may contribute to that hurt. Let's start that dialogue. Let's have a better understanding. I think there's such a disconnect actually still that we need to kind of overcome in terms of how we relate 
to each other. I mean the entire church. I mean lay people as we relate to priests. I mean lay people as we relate to each other. I just mean Catholics or Christians or just how do we relate to to one another in a way where we don't sort of see your title and sort of stick you in a category and feel like we're only able to engage with you in a particular way. I grew up in a church where it was very much about ticking the boxes, following the rules, the sacraments, and and less about developing an individual, like the muscles, I guess, of your faith where, I mean, life is complicated, right? It's You can check, tick all the boxes and show up to church every Sunday and still not really be sharing or living the gospel in the way that we are called to do. And that goes for any of us. So just figuring out how to navigate some of the stuff, I think, requires us as lay people to exercise a little bit more maturity in developing our faith and also being, I mean, at least in my part, I'd like to be a little bit bolder in thinking about how I can try to engage our leadership. I mean, one of the things that our pa- my pastor said to me after my dad died that has just stuck with me was, I mean, I was just overwhelmed with grief and trying to figure out what to do and what does my life mean and where am I going and thinking about maybe I should go on another mission trip and what should, I just really floundering. And he told me actually about the Benedictines who among the typical vows that you would expect a Benedictine monk to take, they also take a vow of stability <laughs> And the idea being, at least this is how I've interpreted it. The vow isn't about going to find stability wherever stability may be. It's about choosing to be stable amid all of the chaos that happens around us to find your purpose, find your voice, find your respond to God's call in the midst of all of this chaos. And I've really kept that with me. And trying to figure out like, ah, okay, this is the community that God has called me to. I'm back in Texas. This is my parish community. I maybe grew up in a church where it was not appropriate to ever second guess a priest or second guess my role. But like maybe God has given me a gift in the context of my church community that I could talk about more (laughs) with a priest. Like I just never would have thought about that before. And that is something now that I'm more interested in figuring out like, what is my role? What can I do? I do the things that I know to do. Like I lecture, I go to mass, but like, what more can I do? And so that's a little more complicated, right? It takes a little bit more thought and prayer and pushing, but I think there is an opportunity for every one of us to kind of find the role that we play and play it so that hopefully we're taking care of each other better. We're living the gospel as best we can. Especially right now. I mean, you're talking about chaos and finding stability. I mean, in the entire church right now, it feels like a lot of chaos. So I think you're you're drawing a lot of lessons that we can all learn from. You mentioned that sharing your experience with your faith community was profound. What lessons do you think that the entire church could learn from that? I mean, I think the most basic one is that we are not designed to be alone. We are designed to live and love in community. I don't think it's enough to say, well, I have a good individual relationship with God. I'm good. I go to mass every Sunday. I'm good. We're called to be Christ to one another. It takes effort for me to put myself in the presence of others. That is what we are called to do. It it doesn't matter if you like the person or not, (laughs) if they um, annoy you or not, if they cause you 
pain or offense. Like we're still called to be Christ to those people too. And if we can't even practice with the people that we have an affinity for, goodness knows, like how are we (laughs) going to have the muscles that we need to be present and responsive and Christ to the people who are difficult to be present for? There's just so much there, I think. And honestly, frankly, because I had no idea how much that simple act of sharing my story with a room full of strangers would help me. I I had no way of imagining how much personal healing could come from something like that. And I'm not saying that that's what everyone who has experienced this needs to do. But even maybe finding one person that you can go and share your burdens with starts you down a path of solidarity and healing and forgiveness that I simply couldn't have obtained alone. And I'm so thankful. And the other thing, honestly, that came from that experience, I was really disturbed at the number of women who came to me and said, I have been affected by this too. And that's the part that kind of keeps the fire lit. I am an advocate at heart. I'm a journalist. I am an advocate for the truth and for lifting up voices that would otherwise not be heard. And that just bothers me. Like it bothers me that it exists at all, but it really bothers me that it exists in my community of faith, that it exists in my family and that it doesn't need to. So you're saying the church needs to create spaces for people to tell their stories, whether they're ready to tell them or not. Yeah, that this is a safe space for you. By, by virtue of this process, I had to do ethics and integrity and ministry training. And that's what our diocese enacted after the first scandal. And I, I attended this and anyone who volunteers in our diocese or is in a position to be working with kids or a vulnerable population goes through this training to really help them understand, you know, what are the patterns of abuse that I should be looking out for? How basically how do we how can we be better protectors of our children? And I just remember thinking a couple things about that experience. One, there was one woman in that even in that workshop who um got kind of defensive at one of the case studies that was presented of of a priest who had been abusing a young girl in a rural parish. She said something along the lines of, well, why are they only showing Catholics mm-hmm. in this tra- in this training? Like other churches have this problem too, which is totally true. But it's like the point is, <laughs> this is a problem in our right. community that we're trying to address, you know? And just thinking, wow, even this sort of self-selected smaller percentage of the church population that is active in the church is defensive. So like creating a space so that folks feel like the only time we talk about this is not in this sort of where we're trying to penalize people or make people feel badly, but that we're simply talking about how we take care of each other. It also occurred to me that, wow, wouldn't this be awesome? And I don't know if I'm sure there's all these legal issues that need to be addressed, but this is like my pie in the sky response. I thought if volunteers who work with kids have to take this training, like why doesn't every parent and godparent of a baptized child take this training. I sent some of the stuff that I saw in this training to my family members because it was so good. And I thought I saw myself in these different sort of stages of grooming. And like, I recognized myself in this training. And I was like, Oh, man, I mean, what if my family had had this? And so yeah, I just 
think that there, this is maybe the part of me that I bring from like my secular problem solving mode. And maybe it's really naive, but like, wouldn't it be great if more people could bring their problem solving skills from beyond the church to like help the church <laughs> if there was space for that? could yep. be kind of awesome. <laughs> that doesn't sound so pie in the sky to me. So for a lot of Catholics, this has been, I mean, especially for victims of abuse, it's been a difficult summer given all of the news that's been coming out. What advice do you have for family and friends who want to be supportive of people who have been abused or to create spaces where those people feel like they can come forward? I think to be patient, both I would ask for people who've suffered abuse to be patient, but also their friends and family to be patient because I wrote it very succinctly in that piece, but there is no succinct, perfect apology often. And I think it's a process. So if you know of someone in your life who has been affected by this, even just volunteering your presence and saying, I understand that this has happened to you. I see you. I don't know what it means necessarily or how it's impacted your life. But if you ever want to talk with me about it, I'm here. And most of all, I'm praying for you. I'm simply praying for you. The other thing that's been interesting to me is the change in my brothers and sisters response to me, actually, after I wrote this. <laughs> I was actually nervous. I have one brother in particular I just, I don't know. I was just nervous. I'm just hyper. Like this again is like the child, like the youngest of seven who's like, oh, am I messing up here? And <laughs> am I going to get in trouble for writing this or saying this out loud? And just being really gratified by their support and just the, if I didn't say it before, I'm sorry and I love you and how can I be better for you has been really beautiful. And the other response that I would also want to acknowledge has been so brave and was, I think, the most concerning to me when I wrote this piece, because I knew that it would be very public, was the response of my niece and nephew. This happened to me, it was my brother-in-law, and I've been so grateful at, I've obviously, I have spoken to them about this before, but I spoke with them before this thing was going to be published because I didn't want them to be surprised and they have been so beautiful in their response to me and in their support of me and in making clear that they love me. And what a gift, what an incredible gift. And it's that kind of like selflessness of being able to say, I am hurt by this too. And they are, they're affected by this. And to be able to put that aside and say, I love you, Thea, it's been like just incredible. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing and trusting us with your story. One final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? I knew that this was coming and I thought a lot about it. And I feel like my answer may be boring. But I'm going to go with my mother. My mom passed away when I was 14. And it was just that age when like, you start to recognize you think your parents are saints. And then you're like, maybe not. Something's up here. They may be actually human. The reason I would canonize my mother is I, I don't know, I feel her grace with me now, all of these years later, as I have been working through all of this. And I think these are exactly the women, the people who I want to see in a community of saints cheering me on and to realize God makes us perfect, right, in his time. And I am hoping that he and my mother are like 
up there helping me, cheering me on. So I'm going to say my mom. What was your mom's name? Veronica. Veronica. St. Veronica. Pray for us. Yeah. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing and trusting us with your story and for coming on the podcast. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. Do you enjoy talking with your friends about social justice? Often over drinks? Yes. Well, Jesuitical is sponsoring Solidarity on Tap in partnership with our friends at the Ignatian Solidarity Network. It's a great mix of socializing, reflection, and an opportunity to hear powerful reflections on the work for justice. For more information and to RSVP for an event near you, check out igsol.net slash SOT. And for our listeners in Seattle, there will be a Solidarity on Tap at Optimism Brewing Company on October 10th. And we've got some new Patreon supporters that we want to shout out this week. Thank you so much to Teresa Payne, who's coming in at the super fan level. And Tess Garvey is the newest member of the Ambassadors Club. So thank you to all our Patreon supporters. You guys help make the show possible. All right, time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? So my consolation comes from a tweet storm of mine that is in relation to wedding planning. I apologize in advance to my co-host and co-workers and listeners for all of the wedding planning ones that are going to be happening in the next year. (laughs) We're starting to engage with the parish where we're going to get married, Amanda and I. And it's, you know, our home parish. We're really excited to do that. And I was starting to run into some of the guidelines that you can and cannot do while having a Catholic wedding. And one of the lines that really frustrated me reading this was that weddings of member people, Catholics who are not registered in the parish are typically not possible. And I will say that this is not going to affect Amanda and I because our parents are both still uh, parishioners there. But I just was thinking like about all the people who that we are turning away because of this. And because of that, it's not just my home parish's problem. A lot of people tweeted back at me like, oh, we ran into the same thing. Or, oh, they didn't count my college youth ministry program as a parish that I was registered at. And so I couldn't get married. And it sounds like a lot of people have, young people in particular, having problems finding somewhere to get married in the church, even though they want to. In the past, when I've been met with church bureaucracy, that's led me into desolation. But the consolation this week is that I'm really leaning on God and asking God, where am I being called to love the church into wholeness? And where is the church actually loving me into wholeness with these guidelines? And so I'm trying to use this frustration and channel it in a way that's going to better both myself and the church. And I don't know what that process is going to end up with right probably a lot of more more tweets tweet probably more <laughs> tweets maybe some angry angry articles no but that's going to take some prayer and discernment uh that i'm going to go through in the coming weeks nice all right i've got a desolation this week so i always get depressed around my birthday i don't know what i mean i do know why it's like you take stock of your year and you're like oh god I did nothing. And so this year, my birthday is also in the same month as my five-year anniversary at America. So now I have five years worth of things to take stock of and feel inadequate. (laughs) Um, And so for the past month, I've just been kind of in this like negative feedback loop of like, you haven't done anything important. You haven't advanced your career. You haven't advanced your education. I've just been like listening to that lie on repeat for a very long time. 
been unable to get out of that lie because I've listened to this other lie, which is that I can't reach out to the friends that I usually would who live in different cities just because like I hate I hate calling people with like my burdens. Like it's much more fun to catch up with your friends when you have good news to share. So I've just been kind of stuck in that. And I know I need to break out of it, but I can't do that when I'm listening to to, to the lies and not and not pulling out. So when I was telling Eric this in spiritual direction, he was like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, well, I think, I think sharing it here is the first step. <laughs> and so hopefully that's true. As someone <laughs> who has been here your entire five years at America, I want to say that you have a lot to be proud of because you're an amazing writer and editor and podcaster. So thank you, Olga. And Appreciate as someone that. who complains to their friends a lot, it's really, it can be a lot of fun. I think you should try it. <laughs> okay. good good stuff all right what do you have olga i've got a consolation this week last episode i talked about feeling really lost with getting rejected professionally and how that was making me question my vocation and sort of my role as a writer and this week i've been really nervous getting ready for a feature that i have due next week for america and i went into it feeling really anxious but i've started sort of interviewing a few catholics of color and sort of just In the very initial conversations that I've had with them, it's been really refreshing to be humbled in my conversations with them because I'm being reminded that, one, I'm seeing God in these people who are sharing their life with me, their faith journeys with me. But also it's it's really refreshing and humbling to just be reminded that what I'm doing is so much bigger than me. And it's not just me on this island. Like I'm a part of this community. I'm a part of this church. And this is why I'm here. So it's just been really rewarding to like, especially after all the negative feelings I was feeling the past two weeks, it's just really consoling to sort of find my place again in media and in the church. So that's great. I cannot wait to read your feature. I know it's going to be amazing. Thank you. And you have a baller feature out this week that everyone should go read in Sojourners. I'm just going to shout that out real quick. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Ashley, get us out of here. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor this week is Caitlin Pierce. Adverbs provided by Patty Beat Raisinger. Jesuit Formation by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Emma Winters. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to T Storm and Killerio. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.